Let's see, there's no children's church, right? Okay. All right. Would you please take your copy of the Word of God then, and let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, which is where we're at this morning, Matthew chapter 4. There's two places you can read about the temptations of Christ. Easy to remember because it's in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be dealing, since we're in the book of Matthew, of course, we're going to be dealing with this one that we have before us in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. I am going to refer to the other one a little bit just because it gives us a little more information uh, in something that we, we need. Uh, Greg, is this uh, microphone working? Oh, it is. Okay. I was going to take it off like a piece of junk. Okay. Uh, you can't believe this little little cord and this thing cost, cost us $400, so you would think it would work a little better than it has. So, Anyway, getting back to this, all right? You may not know this, but in the United States of America, mountain lions are the animals that are regarded as the number one human predator. Number one in America, mountain lions. Author and naturalist Craig Childs, was on foot one day doing research on the mountain lions in Arizona's Blue Ridge Wilderness. As he was approaching a water hole, because he was thirsty, uh, from downwind, he spotted a mountain lion drinking at the water hole. The lion does not notice his presence and doesn't smell him because he's downwind. When it finishes drinking, however, it slowly walks away into a cluster of junipers that are about 30 feet away. After a few minutes, Childs walks over to the water hole to identify the tracks that were left there because he's studying them in the mud, and he records some notes. And just before he bends down to look closer, he scans the perimeter, and there among the shadows of the junipers, 30 feet away is a pair of eyes watching everything that he does. He expects the lion's going to run away. There's enough distance between us. He knows I'm here. I'm facing him. Uh, he'll just run away, but he walks into the sunlight toward Childs, and Childs pulls the knife that he is carrying, and he stares into the eyes of the lion. He knows what he must do. More importantly, he knows what he must not do. So he writes this, and I'm quoting now what he said. Mountain lions are known to take down animals six, seven, or eight times their size. Their method is to attack from behind, clamp onto the spine of the prey at the base of the prey's skull, snap the spine. The top few vertebrae are the target, housing respiratory and motor skills that cease instantly when the cord is cut. Now, he's not saying that mountain lions know that. He just knows that's how they kill, and this is what's happening, right? Mountain lions, he goes on says uh, to say, have stalked people over periods of time miles at, at once. One woman survived an attack and escaped uh, on foot down a road. The lion shortcut the road several miles farther down and killed her from behind. Child says this, I hold firm to my ground and do not even intimate that I will back off. If I run, it is certain. I will have a mountain lion all over me. If I give it my back, I will only briefly feel the weight of its body on me against the ground and its canine teeth will open my vertebrae without breaking a single bone. The mountain lion begins to move to my left. I turn, keeping my face on it, my knife at my right side. It paces to my right then, trying to get around to the other side to get behind me. I turn right, staring at it. My stare is about the only defense that I have. 
Childs maintains that defense as the mountain lion continues to try to provoke him to run. Turning left, then right, back and forth again and again. Now the mountain lion is only 10 feet away from him. Finally, the standoff ends. The lion turns and walks away, defeated by a man who knew what never to do in the presence of a lion. Now, Paul, the apostle, had similar knowledge of his greatest adversaries, and that would be Satan and his demons, because he knew Satan's method. He knew how to defend himself. Now, today we're going to be talking about what do we do with temptation? How do we handle it? We're going to look at the Lord Jesus and how he handled temptation. This is going to help us understand how to deal with temptation when it comes our way. Or I may use the word testing when it comes our way. How do you deal with tests from God that come your way? In general, how does a believer defeat the advances of the enemy in their life and not give in to those? Jesus is going to help us with that this morning. I want to read now from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Um, I need to get a Kleenex. I don't know what it is about our pulpit, but I'm allergic to it for some reason. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What's going on here? Well, he just was baptized by John, and the Spirit of God descended as a dove and came on him and indwelt him. And now Jesus is being indwelt by the Spirit of God. He's being directed by the Spirit of God. He will do his miracles by the power of the Spirit of God. He will allow the Spirit of God to dictate everything that happens. So we find Jesus right after that baptism being led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See, one of the things that Jesus is trying to prove is that I am an obedient son of God. Israel was not obedient when they left the, the land of Egypt under captivity, but I will be obedient as a son and achieve what the Father sent me to be. So he is listening to the Spirit, and the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Uh, I think that's an understatement. He's very hungry because he's 100% human and 100% God. And the fact that he's hungry shows that he is also man. And the tempter, that's another word for Satan, came and said to him, Since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Okay, Jesus is hungry, and so he says, Why don't you just turn these rocks into bread? I mean, you are the Son of God. But he, that is Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The devil then took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. I just want to make a point here. How close do you have to be to Jesus to be able to take him and put him on the pinnacle of the temple? Pretty close, all right? Now keep that in mind because we're going to say something about that later, all right? The devil took him. And he said to him, If you are or since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Obviously there was supernatural power involved in that, to be able to see all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Uh, what, a, what an exciting thing to see God send his angels to take care of the Son of God after he passed all those tests. Let's look back at this, starting in verses 1 and 2. And in your bulletin, if you're following along, uh, what your first point is, is this. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I want you to know that God leads us into tests in life. I'm not using the word temptation, but God leads us into tests in life. But he never tempts us to do the wrong thing. There's a huge difference. God will lead you to a place in your life where you have to make a decision. Am I going to do the right thing for God or am I going to do the wrong thing, maybe for myself? And it's that point of decision where we have to make a decision. If God made the decision at that point, you would never have to worry about going the wrong way. But he doesn't. God doesn't force me and he doesn't force you to do the right thing ever. He wants us to make that decision. And then when we make that decision to step one foot in his direction, he'll lend us the power of heaven to continue down that path. If we decide to serve ourselves and go the wrong way, there's nothing but a ruinous road and destruction waiting at the end of that decision. Jesus Christ makes the right decisions all the time, and we need to do that as well. So Jesus had just finished uh, his baptism with John the baptizer, He had entered into the waters of that baptism, a very righteous man, a perfect man. None of us do that, but Jesus could. And he left those waters the same way. The water didn't change Jesus. It didn't make him more holy or less holy. It didn't do anything to him except show that he was identifying with sinners and identifying with their problems and that his ministry would be all about saving them. Jesus entered the water, the Son of God, holy, and he left that way. He is unlike those who went through also the Red Sea, where there was another sort of baptism for the children of Israel, even though they didn't get wet at that one. In verse 1, at the first part, on the heels of that event of baptism, of passing through the waters, he is sent to a desolate place to undergo temptation and testing. Now, this is not by accident. God's just not making up a great story. What God wants us to think about is that he had another son, years ago that spent 430 years in captivity in a place called Egypt. And God, by his mighty power, brought that son, Jacob, and his family, brought them out of that that wicked and evil city of Egypt, and he took them out in the wilderness, and he brought them through the water safely, and they had a job to do. Believe God, follow God, and Deuteronomy 4.1 and Deuteronomy 8.1, live such holy and, and righteous lives that the people around you will say, Wow, you ought to see our God. He isn't like your God. He's not righteous. He's not holy. How did you live like that? How did you figure that out? And you'd say, well, because of our God. And he would introduce you to our God. And that's what Israel was supposed to do, evangelize and save the world. That didn't work. They did what mostly happens to people. They became more like the world instead of like what God wanted them to be. And then they had no answers for the world. This son is not like that. And he goes through, uh, the, the, after his baptism, through the water. And now he's out being tested in the wilderness like Israel, uh, Jacob's sons, were being tested in the wilderness. And all this reminds us of what he is. He is the new son. 
coming out of Egypt. And that's why the text says after Joseph and Mary took him to Egypt, he said, out of Egypt I brought my son. This is a different one, not Israel. He will succeed, <coughs> excuse me, he will succeed where the Israelites failed when they proved to be faithless sons of God. Let me just interject a little bit of application there. As far as I know, you're all saved, but I don't know your hearts. I hope you are. If not, maybe you'll do it today. But Jesus sent you where he sent you, to your school, to your neighborhood, to your job, to your occupation, so that you would be a faithful son or daughter of his, and you would reach people there with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can he count on you? Can he count on me? Well, they went through the Red Sea's waters, but after passing through the water, they proved to be disobedient sons of God. Jesus will prove that he's not like them. He's going to be a different kind of a son of God. Out of Egypt, God calls this son of his, and he will succeed in completing the mission where Israel failed. Notice in the second part of verse 1 that the Holy Spirit is the one sending him into testing. Uh, the word in Greek for testing or temptation is perazo, and it's, it's translated in either way, testing or tempting. But since God doesn't tempt anyone to do the wrong thing, we're going to translate that as testing. The Spirit of God led him to be tested by the devil to see if he's the real thing, to see if he'll turn from God and do his own thing, to see if he would serve his will and not the will of God. And so the Spirit of God leads him out there to be tested, and the devil is the one who's going to be doing the tempting. The purpose for sending him there was to test him at the hands of the devil himself. Just like Adam and Eve were tested by the devil, and they failed. Just like the children of Israel were tested at the waters of the Red Sea, and they came through, and they failed. This son will not fail. And so he stands against the temptations. Some of these parallel what happened in the Garden of Eden as well in that scene with Adam and Eve who failed to resist Satan's temptation against them. And I want you to understand, every time there is temptation to do what is wrong, it's not just nothing. It's what Satan is trying to do to get you to go someplace you shouldn't go and do what you shouldn't do. Dr. Craig Blomberg says this, interesting parallels emerge between Jesus' three temptations and those of Eve and Adam in the garden in Genesis 3.6, where she looked at that fruit and she saw, hey, this is good for food, and this is pleasing to the eye, and this was desirable for gaining wisdom. All right, these three triads seem to parallel John's epitome of human temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life from 1 John 2.16. Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't remember that, that that's what we're trying to avoid, those three things. By the way, God also sends us into situations where our resolve for Christ is going to be tested. God is always wanting to know, who do you serve? What choice are you going to make? And when he puts you in those situations, he's watching which way are you going to go? What decision are you going to make? And God, the Bible says, he tests us all the time. He tested, I think he tested Jan Daniel when he was 86 years old. You'd think by then Daniel had proved himself. And yet he faces the lion den at such an old age, and he proved himself there also to be faithful. God's sending temptations, uh, letting them happen through Satan when he tests us. 
to check our resolve. Are we going to serve Christ or serve something else like mostly ourselves and what we want to do? How are we to handle those times and be successful as God regards success? What we do in a nutshell is we trust God and we don't sin against him. We do what God tells us to do. If we could get a hold of that and realize it's my decision that I have to make, God doesn't make it for me, our life can be what God wants it to be. In verse 2, the text says, After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, then Jesus became hungry. Jesus is in a very weakened condition physically. This proves the humanity of Jesus Christ. And temptation is always harder to resist when you and I are weakened physically and mentally uh, in those two conditions. It's uh, easier to resist when we're strong and we're uh, following God and we're doing what we're supposed to do. But when there's a weakness in there, and sometimes people uh, say things about God making them well that they really don't mean had they been well, and they say things they shouldn't, but Jesus is in a weakened state. Now is when the devil decides to start his work of the temptations. So verses 3 and 4. Our existence is only possible each day by the decree of the Father. We really need to remember that. You and I are not in charge of whether we live today. You and I are not in charge, if we have a good lunch, that we're going to make it to supper. You and I don't have anything to do with that. And we're going to find out why in just a minute. The, the devil, the tempter comes along. He's also the accuser. He's, he's all kinds of things. There's uh, over 23 different names for the devil in the Bible. The one who is the slanderer, that's who he is, the adversary of God's people, the principal transcendent evil being in the universe, also known as Satan. The devil is the arch enemy of God because he rebelled against God. He thumbed his nose at God and he decided, I'd rather the world worship and serve me than worship and serve you. And other angels said, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And that's why the Bible says behind every idol, there is a demon accepting the worship to that idol. They don't want to serve God's humanity and help them with ministry. They want to be served. Satan is the chief of those liars. The devil is God's arch enemy. But I want you to know God is not concerned about him. God doesn't give him a second thought. The devil doesn't bother God at all. Uh, he is not afraid of, this, of Satan's great power. In fact, if John records for us in 1 John 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do you believe that? You don't have to give in to Satan because he's overpowering you or his, his logic is so reasonable. God is always the one who gives the truth and God's power is greater. God is greater than the devil ever will be and Jesus will finally defeat him one day soon. He is called the tempter because he is the one who does those things to try to snare us, trap us, encourage us to go away from God and not do what he tells us to do when we're on that road and we meet that fork and we have to make a decision. The temptation is revealed. Jesus, you're starving, Satan says. Prove you're God's son by turning these rocks into bread. Surely the son of God could do that. In the wilderness, the Israelites complained about the bread God supplied every morning that just showed up, all the manna. Jesus had no bread in his temptation in the wilderness. They were there 40 years. He was 40 days to represent the 40 years. He had no bread. And I want you to understand what he did was he refused to usurp the will of the Father. 
And remember, he is God. He's indwelt by the Spirit of God. He could have turned those rocks into bread. That's not a problem for him. But he didn't. He could have just said, well, I am a little hungry, and you might be tempting me for a little longer. Let me just you know, go ahead and get a little half of bread. But he didn't. Instead, he decided to wait on God. You get that? He has, he has this great physical need. His, his tummy is hurting inside. His, no, no food there. Hasn't been for 40 days. And Satan mentions, you know, if you're the son of God, let's put you, put you to the test. Just turn that rock into a loaf of bread. And Jesus refuses it. Jesus, in verse 4, fights temptation with two things. And this is what we need to know. The will to obey God, number one. And number two, then obeying God. Obeying God. If you have the will to obey God, but you decide not to obey God, you're going to end up following the temptation, and you're not going to do well. It will come to haunt you. It will come back to bite you. Satan makes it look okay for a while, and then he puts you on a ruinous road, a crooked road that will harm you. Jesus here quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. And I want you to see some of these, so if you'd like to turn there, that'd be great. Jesus knows his Bible. You know who else knows the Bible? Satan knows it better than anybody in this room. Satan knows it better than all of us combined know the Word of God. And so Satan uh, tells him, turn these rocks into bread. Jesus then quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, not all of it, but he says, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And here's why, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do, do we know that? Do we understand that we, it's not bread that keeps us alive? I think, I think we're fortunate enough today, somebody gave us some ribs. I think we get to have ribs today. Man, they're delicious. But the point is, those ribs are not going to keep me alive. It's the decree of God on your life where he says, you will live today. And by the way, God has meticulously planned the day of your death, and you cannot cross over it. But if it's not today, it's only because of God's power. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. See, it takes more than just physical bread to keep a person alive. Jesus knew that. We cannot sustain our lives apart from the declaring uh, of ourselves that we live only by God's decree. We must understand we live only by God's decree. Uh, I may be able to overcome cancer, but in the end it's because of God. And if I don't, that's also because of God. Imagine the excruciating pain of having gone 40 days without food. I know people that they feel like they're going to die if lunch isn't on time. A physical need, you need to get this, okay? It's what Jesus modeled. A physical need does not nullify our responsibility to maintain spiritual fidelity, spiritual truthfulness, spiritual faithfulness to God. That is, we obey God over physical desires. I'm always dealing with men that felt like they had no choice but to commit adultery on their wives. <laughs> oh, yes, you did. And what you're calling a physical need is not a need. 
And we have other people who tell lies and they say, well, I, I had to lie to get this or get that. No, no, you didn't. It doesn't matter if I have a physical need that is not met and I, I cannot nullify that need, that urge, by going against the word of God. That's what Jesus was doing here. He said, yes, I have a physical need. Yes, I need food. My body is starting to eat on itself, but I will not succumb to disobedience to God to have a loaf of bread. You see, uh, let me put it this way. You and I, we do not turn our back on the lion because we still think we need a little more to drink. It'll be death to us. Now, we are seeing that resisting temptation is about knowing God's word and using it properly. Dr. Craig Keener pointed out, it is possible to use scriptures for unrighteous causes. That's what Satan was doing, telling not the whole story, uh, picking just a verse out of the Bible that uh, maybe, you know, Jesus, if you're this, you can, you can turn stones into bread. And Jesus comes back with uh, the rest of the story and the truth of God. We cannot use scriptures or contort it to unrighteous causes. Further, he teaches that religious leaders can even become a mouthpiece for the devil's lies. And we have to be aware. We must, you must use the scripture properly. We must not use the scripture in a way that we make one verse contradict another, which is what Satan is doing here. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Daryl Bach says this, Obedience and victory in the face of temptation come from knowing what God's commands are and having the capacity to perform it. Christians who regularly study the Bible and humbly depend on the Spirit for their strength to obey can successfully resist the devil today. That's what Jesus did. Now, 5 through 7, the other te another temptation. The devil tempts Jesus to test God's resolve to protect him. Does the Father love Jesus? Yes. Is the Father going to protect him? Well, yes, until the day he lets him be killed on the cross. And he went through other heartache and pain along the way, but it's still in the Father's hands. But the devil, in verse 5, takes Jesus to the summit of the southeast roof of the portico in the temple. All right, uh, the devil uh, quotes Psalm 91, 11 to 12. I want you to see that. So uh, the devil knows the Bible, and he's quoting this. He knows that that particular psalm is messianic. It's a prediction of the Messiah. And so he's going to want to say, well, if you're really the Messiah, then this would be true of you. And it would be. But uh, in Psalm, yeah, I turned too many pages. Hang on. 91 is what we're looking at. This is what Satan uses, verses 11 to 12. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in, in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample them down. So Satan brings this up and he says, you know, while we're up here, why don't you jump? Let's just see if, if God will uh, allow his angels to come and to protect you from that. Jump off. Let's see if God really cares about you. By the way, we are tested by God. All this has the permission of the Father that Satan is doing. We are never to put God to the test to see what he will do, what he said he would do. 
We never doubt that God will do what he said he's going to do. We never put God to the test, say, God, if you really care about me, then you'll do this. And Satan is saying, if, if God the Father really cares about you, Jesus, jump off, baby. And God will send his angels to bear you up. Let's just see if God will do what he said he's going to do. There's no maturity in Christ for those who say things like that. Satan certainly has none. And Jesus rightly uses Deuteronomy 6, 16. I'm going to read that too. He says, you must not put Yahweh your God to the test as you did test him at Massah, talking to the children of Israel. And Jesus recognized, yes, God said that about me. Yes, God cares about me. But if you think I'm going to put the Father to the test, you have another thing coming because I will not violate in the book of the law that God said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he didn't do that either. Well, in verses 8 to 9, we learn that we are only to worship the true God and serve him exclusively. Now, wouldn't it be easy if every temptation we had fell into these three categories? We say, well, I know exactly where to go for that. But if you study the Word of God, you know the Word of God, you care about the Word of God, it's, it's what you live for, you'll have the right verses to help you in temptation. In verse 8, Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain. I want you to please note that Satan controls this movement, and he is close enough to Jesus to carry him. And I want you to also know that that cannot, will not, no way affect the righteousness or holiness of Jesus Christ. I believe that through sin, the enemy in Christians can have ground in your flesh, not in your spirit. He cannot possess your spirit, but he can demonize your flesh if, if you've opened up your life to sin. And if you take care of your sin, but you don't take care of the ground the enemy has, you won't be free. And people tell me, well, God cannot be close to the devil because the devil is wicked and sinful and evil. As if somehow the wickedness of something else could affect the holiness of God. No. Uh, this is pretty close. He carries him to the pinnacle of the temple. He takes him to the high, a high mountain to show him things. Is the, is the holiness of Jesus affected? No way. That would be heresy. Neither is he going to be affected if the Spirit of God lives in you but you've allowed the enemy to have control in your life. Does he want the enemy gone? Yes, he does, and you can do that with his help. Sure, you can, and be free of those things. But he cannot possess your soul. He cannot own your soul. But he's still a big problem if we don't take care of him. Now, the enemy is not inside Jesus' flesh. Never will be, because Jesus never sinned. And that's the difference between you and me and him. So he shows Jesus the kingdoms of the earth and their enticing glory. The Bible says Satan is the little G God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The kingdom we live in is the dark kingdom of Satan, and that's why it's a battle all the time. That's why spiritual warfare goes on all the time, because we live in his kingdom. We are, we are uh, with the truth of God, lights in this world, in this dark kingdom, but the kingdom is after you. And God wants us to stay with his kingdom. So he rightly corrects Satan, again, in Deuteronomy 6, 13. Jesus says, you will fear only Yahweh your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. 
See, Satan keeps taking things out of context and getting Jesus to try to twist the scripture and say, yeah, jump off, he'll take care of you. Or I'll give you all this kingdom if you just bow down and worship me. That's where Jesus cringed. (laughs) That's not going to happen because it defies the word of God. Are you seeing how important knowing the word of God is to successfully navigate, navigate through spiritual temptation? And then you have to do it. I'm going to say a word about that in just a minute. Lastly, in verse 11, Satan will look for other opportune times, but the obedient are comforted by God through these uh, successfully navigating these tests. Luke chapter 4, I told you, is the other place where the temptation of Christ is talked about. And it, uh, it ends in verse uh, 13 this way. When the devil had finished... In other words, that word in the Greek means he exhausted every possible avenue of temptation. He left Jesus, he left him until an opportune time. He's not done with Jesus yet. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, he's not done with you and say, well, I lost him, I lost her, can't, can't mess their life up. Oh, no. Uh, that's a little setback for Satan, but he's going to keep working. He's going to keep trying. He's going to wait for an opportunity. He's going to look for a time when you're weak. And then he pounces and severs our spiritual spine. And we fall to destruction. So Satan isn't done. He will relentlessly keep tempting. He leaves, but he's not gone forever. And friends, we are always facing that spiritual battle. And I want you to know that that battle starts in a small way and then it ends up in a big way. We are completely against abortion. We are also aware that God can forgive anybody who's done that. But we're against it. And so, you know, we have days where we collect money for that and do all this stuff and all that. But I want you to understand that abortion began with a lot smaller decisions and many bad decisions along the way before it happens. It'd be nice if we could stop it down here. It'd be nice if it never happened. It would be nice if we never started considering that. And that's the way it is with sin. It starts with something small, and Satan says, okay, I'll give you a half-truth. Bite, bite that. And I go, okay, I got a half-truth. And then I get more lies, and then I get more lies, and then I'm doing worse things. Next thing you know, I've done something completely abominable. And that's how he works. And uh, let me just share a a little pet peeve I have as I (laughs) listen to to, uh, other preachers and devotions on the radio. And things like that. I hear people saying, oh God, in their prayer, oh God, uh, stop me from making these bad decisions. Oh God, make it so that I won't do these wrong things. And I think, well, you don't get it. That isn't biblical, right? God in heaven is saying, no, I'm not going to make you do the right thing. If I made you do the right thing, we wouldn't have any problems. I want you to choose. Do you love me? Do you trust me? Will you stay on the path I gave you? You choose. Quit praying for Jesus to make your life holy and righteous and good and start saying, here's what the word says, I'm going to do it. I make up my mind to do that. I said, when you're at that temptation, if you will make the decision, if you will choose to go God's direction, then, and only then, will he allow you the power of, of heaven, of, of the authority of God 
to continue down that path. That's when you get help. But you and I have to make the decision. Those people are wrong. If it was up to God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even have to make the decision. It wouldn't even be a problem. God would just make me do that. No, he doesn't. God gave me a free will when I trusted Christ. What am I choosing? And we choose sin because it looks fun. It looks like everybody else is doing it. And God doesn't do anything to them, so why can't I? Until someday you wake up and find yourself destroyed, killed, and stolen from your life. Because that's what Satan does. He came only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came that you might have life and have it to the full. Choose the right path. And God will help you. And God will give you direction for your life. He may even meet some of the desires of your heart. And he'll lead you into ministry for him. But if you're a person that's always making the wrong decision and proving to God, no, you really don't have all of me. Uh, I'll give you what I want, but you don't get it all. I'm in trouble. That's not going to lead to the right place. And by the way, don't think I've always made the right decision myself. I, you, you understand I preached myself too, right? When I wrote this, I pre, I've, I've been under the conviction of this for 21 weeks. You're just getting it, so. We all have to make the right decision. When it was God's plan to comfort Christ, he sent his angels to help Jesus. And God, my friends, will comfort you. I wish we knew what that must have looked like. That had to be incredible. But if you think that just because you can't see angels, that they haven't come to help you, rescue you, save your life, get you out of an illness because God sent them to do that and minister to you, then you don't understand what's going on. And he wants to help you. If you choose not to do this, then you choose discipline from God because he loves you and God disciplines those whom he loves. And he just wants you to get back on the right track. So make the decision the right way in the first place. We learn here, number one, fight temptation with resolve not to disobey God and then do it. Don't disobey and then and do what you're supposed to do. Obey, keep the faith, walk in his ways. When tempted, Peter put it this way, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, what's going to happen if I embrace the devil and his ways? We don't want that. Secondly, know the word of God and don't use it to contradict itself. When I was studying theology, I got sick and tired of talking to people who wanted to say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. It says this here and this here. Say, you don't understand the Bible. God never contradicts himself. You take things out of context, you use them for your own purposes that they're not meant for at times. They're going to look contradictory, but they are not. Satan tried to pit God's word against God's word in the heart of Jesus, and Jesus knew what was happening. Do we? I think that's why you come to Sunday school and Bible studies and church, so that you're not going to be like a reed blown in the wind when Satan comes to call. But you'll be firm on the word of God. That, that lion, Satan, will kill you if you turn your back on God and go with him. Number three, always rely on the fact that God is good. 
and God will work good for those who obey him. And please remember I said that after a story of a man who spent 40 days in abject hunger. So weigh it out. It all fits. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, each one of us, because we still have the sinful flesh, know exactly what it's like to uh, toy around with the idea and play with the idea of giving in to temptation, giving in to do something we know is wrong. We think, well, nobody will know, no one will care, and yet the Bible says, beware, our sins will find us out, and there will be consequences to pay, and there will be people that will be hurt. And so, Father, I pray that you would just make this very clear in our minds, that you are counting on us, desirous of us, making the right decisions and the right choices to follow you and obey, and that you stand ready to help and minister to those who choose your path. And God, we want so much to be among the people that choose your path. So I pray that you would encourage us in every way and that we would have it as our resolve, I will obey my Father. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you'd stand with us again, we're going to close our service today with hymn number 354.
James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that uh, without your help we cannot resist the devil. Uh, we know the need for your Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, I pray that uh, we in indeed will make the right choices and, uh, Father, lead a life of righteousness that others can see and turn their hearts to you. We just thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.